Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. Well, I've been following it a lifetime, too. So, how fitting that we would start with episode one of the brand new A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'd like to welcome everybody to listening to the first episode. This, of course, being episode one, uh, to give you guys a little bit of information about what you'll be listening to in the coming episodes. A Lifetime in NASCAR is going to highlight NASCAR's illustrious history. We're going to provide some analysis and anecdotes from co-host Aaron Burns. That's me, Ben White. That's Ben. Um, contemporary NASCAR topics, playoffs, silly season, rules changes, classic races, classic drivers. We're going to discuss those with a historic slant. Also talking about how they impact current NASCAR. We're going to highlight all sorts of different interesting stories. In every one-hour episode, you're going to learn about where the sport's been, where it's going to go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. So to get things kicked off, Ben, um, tell me a little bit about where you are in NASCAR, how you got started in it, and how long you've been involved. I sure can, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I I guess my story starts uh, April 16th, 1972. That was the day that my dad took myself and a couple of brothers and a couple of friends to Darlington Raceway. And I didn't know anything about NASCAR at all. The only thing I knew was that I had heard of Richard Petty, but I really didn't know a lot about it so we go that particular Sunday and I tell you what I can still feel the the sun I can still smell the rubber and the tires it was such a great experience for us and my mom had packed a cooler of sandwiches and her famous brownies and and by the way we went by and had to get some really cheap sodas for the day and they were like 10 cents a piece at the local grocery store i wish that was still the case (laughs) yeah i wish it was too and uh so we just packed it in there and i really didn't know what to expect but the one thing i remember was that the 40 car field every driver in the field had had a hand out the window to say welcome to the race we're going to give you a great show and i thought man that is the coolest thing so my brother Doug actually started pulling for Richard Petty that day. And again, none of us knew anything about racing. And he saw the 43 car go by and he said, well, I'll pull for that guy. And my dad had, believe it or not, had a a, a Mercury exactly like David Pearson's that's Wood awesome. Brothers Mercury. And he drove as a company car. So he said, well, hey, that's my car. I'll drive that. Well, I saw a number 12 Coca-Cola Chevrolet go by and I thought, hey, I love Coke. And that's like a really pretty paint scheme. I'm going to go for that guy. <laughs> that's perfect. And really? Yeah, I really didn't know who, who it was, actually, until I saw a lineup and saw it was Bobby Allison. So, And as fate would have it, Bobby and I wrote a book together and became very close friends out of the deal. But just it was such a, a great time. And then in 1983, after trying working for Richard Childress as a crew member and before that driving race cars on a local level, I decided to go the other way and go into journalism and have worked for the Lexington Dispatch newspaper for 37 years and also throughout that time worked for NASCAR Illustrated as managing editor and senior editor and also NASCAR Scene, if you remember those publications. Oh, and I was so, a subscriber, man. I, yeah, we, I, yeah. When I was a kid, we subscribed to Winston Cup Scene, so I definitely know. Yeah. So those were awesome, uh, you know, publications. And in the past 10 years, I've worked for several publications, many. And just, I love NASCAR. I love being a part of it. And and I'm just so, I feel so blessed to be able to do this as a profession. And it's kind of like being paid to love my hobby. And I, I love it. 
I completely know where you're coming from. So for me, I think my story in racing really began the first race I ever saw. And I don't remember this, but the first race that I ever saw was the 1988 Daytona 500. And it was the first race that was ran after I was born. So I was only about um, two months old. So I was born in November of 1987. And I instantly got into it. My parents, uh, my mom and dad, my, my grandmother and granddaddy, they were big, big race fans. Most of them rooted for Bill Elliott, except my dad's a Dale Earnhardt fan. Um, and I instantly got into it. And so one of the first things that attracted me was seeing the light blue STP car. So I was a Richard Petty fan from the time I was one or two years old. Um, that was big for me was Richard Petty. That was, you know, that was my guy. Um, the first time I ever went to a racetrack, I was three. I wasn't quite four years old. It was September of 1991 at North Wilkesboro. It was qualifying for the Tyson Holly Farms 400. This was when Harry Gant was going through his run trying to win five races in a row and he almost did but he had I think he had brake problems and Dale Earnhardt passed him in the last couple of laps and um, you know a bummer because we still haven't seen anybody win five races in a row since Richard Petty but it was, it was such an incredible experience for me I don't remember a ton from it but I, I as, as far as being inside the racetrack but I vividly remember seeing Junior Johnson and his farm and everything. We got. I got to meet Junior. I got to meet Sterling Marlin. I met Rusty Wallace. It was uh, fortunately my parents took a lot of pictures, so we still have them. So it was this really incredible experience. And then the next year, we went to our first race, uh, which was the the Winston at Charlotte, and it was the first time they had ever done it at night. And it was just this incredibly electric atmosphere. And if I'm not mistaken, Ben, did you cover that race? I did. I did. Yes. So, I mean, from my experience, I was a four-year-old kid in the, in the grandstands with the Richard Petty hat on and a mullet. Um, and the biggest, <laughs> hey, it was in style then. And the biggest thing for me was just getting to see all these superstars in person. It was just this incredible visceral experience of seeing all these, you know, these bright colors, you know, flying by at 175 miles an hour. Uh, Davey Allison dominated the first couple of, of uh, segments in the race. We all thought he was going to win. I was honestly pretty bored looking back. Uh, I made mm-hmm. up excuses to have my dad take me to the bathroom every like 15 laps in the first two <laughs> segments because That's funny. I, was, I, thought, I thought it was kind of boring. And he was, you know, pleading with me for the final 10 laps to to stay in the seat and I wasn't going to miss it. So they had this incredible finish where Davey's running third. And as you, you know, well recall, Kyle and Dale Earnhardt uh, almost come together. Earnhardt's leading when they take the white flag. He spins out in turn three. Kyle Petty takes the lead shortly and Davey passes him at the line as they make contact. Davey slams in the wall. And even my parents to this day vividly remember the fact that, you know, Davey got hurt pretty bad in that crash. And he, as he's laying in the car and they're trying to cut him out of the car, Nobody left. Everybody in the in, in the grandstands just stayed and watched because they wanted to make sure that he was okay. And I think all those things, that incredible finish, the history making part of it with, you know, the, the partnership between the Speedway and Musco Lighting to put together the first Super Speedway night race ever, it was something that, you know, as great as things can be after that, I think can only be new once. And it was just absolutely phenomenal. It, If I wasn't hooked then, I talked with Robert Yates later about this, and he was like, oh, it hooked you, didn't it? And I was like, man, if I, if I wasn't hooked by that point, there was no question. So I spent my entire childhood, uh, like you, after my first race as a big race fan. Um, as I got to middle school, um, Dale Earnhardt Jr., came up into the Xfinity series and then the cup series. And I kind of made him my favorite driver because I thought it was so cool that my dad would pull for Dale Earnhardt senior and I'd pull for Dale Earnhardt junior. So you got the father pulling for the father and the son pulling for mm-hmm. the son. And as I got to college, you know, I, I had always had this interest in, um, in, in, being a part of, of the motorsports world. When I was really little, I used to play with the diecast cars, but I wouldn't like pretend I was a driver. Like I got friends who, you know, they'd sit their cars on, on the floor in the living room like I did, and they, they'd make themselves one of the field. Well, I pretended I was Bob Jenkins of ESPN Speed World, and mm. I would do the diehard starting lineup. I would go down, you know, all the way to, to 20th or 25th place or whatever. Um, when I got bored or needed to take a break, I would actually try to recite some of the commercials from the ESPN Speed World commercial that's breaks. Cool. <laughs> yeah, you made it a cool. whole broadcast. And um, if my mom did something that made me mad, and she loves to tell this story, uh, if I if she did something that made me mad, I would be like, oh, we've got trouble in turn four. Bill Elliott's involved. <laughs> um, that's too good. That was my that's way funny. of get, that was my way of getting at her. And then she thinks that's still funny. And I I, I 
barely remember it, but you know, as I and that was in, you know, mid nineties or so. It mm-hmm. was in between the time he was driving for Junior Johnson and then went to to his own team with Charles Hardy in the, the McDonald's car. And then right. you know, started pulling for Dale Jr. and and like I said, got into college and uh, had still followed NASCAR a lot. And by then I was a communications major at Lenore Ryan University, had uh, a significant amount of interest in being a sports journalist. And uh, not long after college, um, after I graduated a couple of years later, I covered my first NASCAR race in uh, 2012, the all-star race and uh, the sprint showdown, which was pretty neat because it was 20 years after the first time I attended a race. I covered one for the first time. That's and cool. uh, That's neat. And then a couple years later, started National Speed Sport News, uh, working for them, covering NASCAR, a little bit of Formula One, World Outlaws, IndyCar. Gave me a chance to broaden the horizons, which had already been pretty expansive for me since I've watched IndyCar and F1 since the mid-90s. But that was a great experience for me. Then I worked for Charlotte Motor Speedway uh, for four years in their public relations department. So that's a place where I've obviously got a lot of history. And, you know, like, like you, I I think that's where we met Ben, if I'm not mistaken, was in the media center at Charlotte. I think so. And, and actually I believe we met because I was doing some program stories for you and had the honor of of working with you on those. And that's kind of how we met a few years back. So yeah, it was good. But you know, talking about Davey, Allison, that first race, I mean, that you saw, it was a, a phenomenal evening to have a race. And, and I'll tell you for, for months and months prior to that, people were telling Humpy Wheeler, who was the former president and general manager of Charlotte Motor Speedway, said, mm-hmm. you can't light a speedway this big. You just, you just can't do it. And, you know, Musco came in and I think it was a little a price tag of about a million dollars, but they put it together and had mirrors. I remember on the inside to help reflect the, the lights on the outside. And it was a great, great race and then of course we see what happened with Davey and Kyle Petty and you know Davey did get hurt in that wreck he did come back a few days later I'm sure he raced the next week but that's the first time that I remember in my lifetime even as a fan that a driver did not go to victory lane yeah because of that uh, because he was injured and of course Robert Yates accepted the trophy but yeah and you know that piece of sheet metal on the I believe it was the yeah, it was it was the left side of the car that he put in the wall. Mm-hmm. That thing hung in Robert Yates racing shot for years after that. Huh. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, not years because it was hit. Davy wasn't there, but because of the helicopter crash, I guess a couple years later. But it did hang there from the day of the night that that happened. The day after they hung that sheet metal up there, just to say, you know, we've been through some tough times, and this was a tough time, but we can get through things. In those days, by the way. The crew members you might have if you really tried hard counting the guy who swept the floor you might have 20 people not 500 like we've got today it's so that was changed a, so much man it has so it right. sure has yeah and it's it was a really neat group of guys who got together and then they're more like family and you know they did several jobs on the race car but uh yeah davy was just a phenomenal person a, a phenomenal driver but also a phenomenal person i, I really miss him a lot he was a good friend I would have loved to have met Davey Allison. We went to an autograph session. I went with my parents at um, at the mall in Gastonia in 92, around the time of the, the All-Star Race in the 600, and we met several drivers. And Dave was supposed to be there, and he didn't make it. And I told uh, Bobby Allison that years later, and he was like, well, that's, that's so out of character for him. And then I kind of put two and two together that he was probably still getting checked up in the hospital because not only had he got knocked out in that crash in the Winston, he'd also broken some ribs, if I'm not mistaken. So they were probably advising him to, you know, to not go anywhere, which I completely understand. Um, but he was a, a just a, a truly fascinating person. An incredible race car driver. Um, I, I when I was younger, I, I made some comparisons between Davey and, and Dale Jr. In particular, how good they were at restrictor plate races, and how they would make the grandstands at Talladega Super Speedway erupt like nobody else could. Mm, that's true. They sure did. <laughs> and now, they sure you, did. Yeah, and now you've got that other, another driver who's coming up through the ranks, and he's already done something that Davey and Dale Jr. and a lot of legends didn't do, and that's win a championship. That's Chase Elliott. Um, and and I feel like Chase kind of has some of those those qualities, Ben, where, you know, he's he's grown up in the sport. His dad mm-hmm. didn't make everything super easy on him. He had to earn his way. And from a very young age, he proved how fast he was on the racetrack. 
Oh, yeah. And, and you know, one of the things with Davey and also with several drivers from that era, Kyle Petty, too, that they their fathers made them learn as much as they possibly could about race cars and especially Bobby because he didn't want to hand uh, Davey a, a race car and say here go race it he wanted him to understand the intricate pieces of the car and the engine and the chassis and so forth so when he was on the racetrack then if he heard something you know in the final laps and, and route to a checkered flag that he'd say he'd know what it was and so Bobby was very adamant about you need to build your own race cars and so for years prior to his driving career he worked for bobby allison racing as a crew member davy did mm-hmm. and th- that was very instrumental in him knowing how to handle race cars and even worked on you know w- within those 20 guys you could you could very much see davy under the car and doing things with the car because he wanted to not because he had to but right he's, he's like i just want to be under here to to fix the brakes or do whatever needs to be done same thing with chase you know he he grew up in a racing family, but he didn't wasn't as much of a silver spoon as you might think. Because Bill did tell me once, he said, "Look, we knew how much money we were going to put into his career, and if he did not succeed in that amount of money or time, we were going to have to say no because we he knew how expensive it was." And and then about the time they were just about to run out of money, then things started to come together, and he started winning and got some some great breaks. But don't think for a second that any of that was handed to Chase because they were on a strict budget and he made sure it's like this may or may not work and that's why you see chase being so incredibly humble now anytime he wins a race he doesn't boast about it he's very giving you know of the crew and making sure they've got you know the the accolade accolades that they need and so I mean, that he, he was just one of those guys that c- did come up the hard way, even though his dad was Bill Elliott. But that's what made Bill, you know, so popular, too, is the fact that people just loved him because he was just like everybody else around Dawson Bill. Same thing with, with Chase. And I admire that about Chase. Now, a lot of this could go to his head, and, and he's not let it do that. The first time I talked to Chase, uh, it was a, more than eight years ago. It was I was just starting out freelancing for National Speed Sport News before I worked for him full time. And the first story I ever did was uh, for the battle at the beach, the big late model and uh, and modified race that they were doing on the backstretch at Daytona. And Chase Elliott was announced that he was going to be in it. So I was like, well, I got to talk to this kid. You know, I've started hearing about him now, and he's winning K and N pro races. So maybe he's going to make something of himself. So I I lined it up, gave him a call, talked to him for like 30 minutes super well spoken um knowledgeable well beyond his years i think at that point he was you know 16 maybe uh we have our birthdays are almost identical and i don't think it was quite mine so i assume it wasn't his um and then a year later when he was in the truck series driving the very appropriate awesomely named aaron's chevrolet for Harry Potter sports the number 94 um <laughs> yeah. man i need that die cast i used to collect so many die casts i don't really buy them anymore but that's one maybe i should add to the collection but i talked to chase for like and and you know this just as well as i do with how things have many many things have changed in the nascar scope over the last couple of decades how difficult it is to pin down a driver for 15 20 minutes for an interview i talked mm-hmm. to chase in a phone interview for at least 45 minutes maybe an hour and the subject matter ranged from certainly his goals at that point it wasn't a certain thing that he was going to run full-time in the truck series in 2014 let alone in the xfinity series where he ended up with junior motorsports and he won the championship as a rookie at this point we didn't know that uh, we just knew that chase had won one truck series race and he'd shown some promise people were beginning to think he was going to be really good in nascar and it was amazing how well-spoken down to earth like you mentioned that chase was even at that point and very open to talking about things within the sport about his family, about his friends. Ryan Blaney was coming up, you know, about the same time as Chase and their buddies, just like Bubba Wallace and several other young guns. And we talked baseball and we talked football for a while. So, you know, he has that ability for a lot of people who can relate to him regardless of their background. And that's the same kind of quality that Dale Jr. had that made Dale Jr. so popular. It's something that made Davey so popular for many people who have told me who are friends with Davey. Uh, Chase has that kind of ability too. And it's not just the driving talent. It's not just the famous last name. In each of these three cases, to me, it's the fact that 
they stand out in a crowd, not because of their ability, but because of their personality and how people can relate to them. And that's one thing I've always respected about Chase. And certainly this year, as I'm sure you'd agree, Ben, it was fantastic to see him win his first cup championship. And, you know, as I've said since then, uh, it seems like the next 10 years are definitely going to be the William Clyde Elliott, the second era for NASCAR. Yeah, I, I do agree with you, Aaron. I think so. And and if you look back at Martinsville of this this past year, I mean, yeah. Chase had to race his way into that. It wasn't it wasn't a given, and he raced his way into the final four, and then he just went out there like Jack the Bear and just you know put everybody in a different time zone because he, he they were prepared and and they got the job done. But I mean, even if you talk to to Chase today, he would say. You know, I don't know if I'm, I'll ever win another race. You know, like, well, of course you will. I said, well, you don't <laughs> yeah. ever know. You don't ever know yeah, because, right. I mean, that, and that humble style that he gives, it's not something that's been created by a PR firm or anything. It's very genuine. And if you look back at Bill and, and Ernie and Dan back in the uh, 1985 when they won the Winston Million, the same sort of thing. Back in those days, I do recall personally going into the garage when Bill Elliott was running for the Winston Million at Darlington. And he was, you know, where's Bill? Well, he's under the car, you know, working on the chassis. And there's a guy who was going to go for a million, a million dollars. And in those days, that was a big, big deal too yeah. and those guys were just very very accommodating when they could be but you got to understand i mean that it was all over the world being talked about how they were up for the winston million and, and that again we see a lot of money in, in racing today but a million dollars in 85 was quite a bit of money and so those guys worked really hard and they were they were criticized a little bit for being what so-called standoffish at times but the fact was that they were out there running for a million bucks. It's like, we're here, and we've got one shot at this. As it turned out, they ended up winning the Winston Million. So it goes back to that humble racer, and you saw it with Dale Earnhardt. That's why he was so popular, mm-hmm. humble about what they were doing, the way they came up, not uh, letting any of this go to their head. The success could be taken away at any point. We saw that with some drivers where their careers ended abruptly, sadly. And mm-hmm. uh, so you just have to realize that, you know, it's not a given and every every win that you have is a blessing and a, and a gift. So you may not know, but I've heard this rumor that when Bill was going for the Winston Million in 85, which is incredible to think about also because the fact that you had to win three of the sports for supposed crown jewel races at the time mm-hmm. and this was in an era where reliability was pretty bad uh he's able to do that but if i'm not mistaken and you could be able to correct me didn't winston and rj reynolds promise this in 85 for 85 it was the first year they had offered the winston million but at the time i don't think they had the money no did they <laughs> They did not have the money. It's better you bring that up. They didn't have it. They went to New York in December of 1984, and they were they offered this million dollar deal, and everybody's like, "Wow, this is the coolest thing in the world." And then as each time that Bill won a race, he won the Daytona 500. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had some brake issues, I think, at Charlotte, if I'm not mistaken, and so. Uh, he did not win at Charlotte. I think he if he came back from two laps down at Talladega. Just yeah. think about how how that was. I mean, good lord, that was that was quite an uh, accomplishment in itself to come back from two laps there. And of course, he goes to Darlington. Well, as you're right, as Tom and and the late great Denny Darnell told me this story, who worked for Winston, hmm. so they didn't have the money, so they had to shuffle some things around and come up with the the million dollars. But it, they didn't think anybody was going to win it. They really, I mean, they hoped somebody would, let's think about it. They thought that, okay, we're going to run this program every year, and it's going to be two, three years. It's got to be before somebody can put together something like this, let alone a little tiny uh, team out of Poduck, Dawsonville. I mean, think you know, it just came together, and they're like, "How are we going to pay this bill?" So anyway, yeah, you're right. That's exactly the story that they didn't have it, and they had to come up with it. And I think one of the reasons it never really dawned on me until we started discussing this just now. But I bet you one of the reasons that they started it in late '84 and began it for '85 was in 1984. 
there was a lot of parity in the Cup Series. I mean, there was three or four guys who could have won a championship late in the year. It looked like Harry Gant had a great shot at it. Terry Labonte wound up winning his first uh, Cup championship, not his last, certainly, uh, in 84. But nobody separated themselves from the pack in 1984. So I would imagine that the Winston and the R.J. Reynolds people were thinking, well, you know, it'll probably be the same thing in 85. And my gosh, they were incredibly wrong because Bill Elliott won 11 races. And were it not for some reliability issues, like you mentioned, he probably would have bagged 15. And the incredible uh, finish to, to that Bill Elliott story in 85, which is incredible. We could spend multiple episodes talking about this, and I'm sure we're going to go back to it frequently. But for all that success for all the money that they won, they didn't win the championship. And what amazes me is that history seemed to forget that, that that was Daryl Waltrip's last championship season. But nobody remembers the fact Bill didn't win the championship because 1985, when you think 1985, if you're a longtime NASCAR fan, you only think of one thing. You think of Bill Elliott winning the Winston Million because, as you said, nobody thought he could do it. He had to overcome so much. That race at Talladega... Imagine Chase Elliott winning at Talladega next year, coming from two laps down. The headlines would be Elliott puts together this incredible comeback. NASCAR Twitter would explode. There'd be people Mm -hmm. talking on YouTube. There'd be podcasts. Everybody would be talking about how Chase Elliott came from two laps down. But he'd have the benefit of getting the free pass, getting a lap back taking a wave around. Bill Elliott didn't have those advantages in 1985. He had to do it with pure raw speed, and that uh, melling course forward, man, that thing could fly, couldn't it? Oh, gosh, yeah, and it was so amazing to see how that would unfold because when he went down that second lap, everybody's like, well, he's, you know, there goes the Winston million. They're not going to do it. And it's, you know, it was a great story while it lasted. Right. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, he got that lap back. And then wait a minute, he's got it. He's back into this thing again and he ends up winning it. But you're right about what you said about 84, because the one thing that came to mind when you were talking was the Talladega race. I believe it was the last Talladega race in 84. They had a tremendous amount of lead changes in that race. And they, I don't remember the number, but it was like crazy. The number of people that had, you know, led that race. And at the end, I do remember it was like 15 cars, and Earnhardt won it, but it was 15 cars going for the win, and very, very close in competition in that in that year. So you're right, it, you know, there was so many people who could have done it, and and Bill and and Dan Elliott, Ernie Elliott, and those again close knit crew members put put together a phenomenal season and won it. But I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I'm sure. Pretty sure that uh, Bill Elliott won 11 races that year, but he didn't win the title. And so it's just crazy how it all worked out. And that's performance driven because, as you saw, Dale, I mean, excuse me, uh, Daryl Waltrip come up and won the championship in 85. So he did win, but it was either win or not do so great. And as far as Bill Elliott's team went, that's why they lost the title. Yeah. And, you know, looking at, at Bill's 1985 and, and considering the, the bit that's really become trivia and the fact that he didn't win the championship is very comparable if you're a pretty new NASCAR fan to what Kevin Harvick did this year in winning nine races. And frankly, I think at various points past the halfway point of the season, I think a lot of us thought that Kevin Harvick was almost had a bye into the final race of the year at Phoenix because he had won so many races and had mm-hmm. so many playoff points that you're thinking, all right, the guy could take two races off during the last 10 and probably still advance because not only does he have all these playoff points, they're also just so much faster than everybody else. And it was yet another example of the unpredictability of NASCAR uh, rising to the forefront in that they just didn't have it on the short tracks when it mattered, uh, particularly at Martinsville in the playoffs, which is very similar to Bill Elliott in 85. Those guys struggled at the short Short tracks. Daryl Waltrip owned the short tracks and for the early to mid 1980s. And that wound up costing Bill, who was much quicker on the intermediate and the faster tracks. Again, not unlike Kevin Harvick uh, in this past season, who was was incredibly quick. And speaking of 2020 and NASCAR, you know, Chase Elliott winning the last couple of races of the season, winning the championship. As of this recording, we're just a couple days removed from the fact that Chase's win streak finally ended. He did not win the Snowball Derby at Five Flags Speedway in Pensacola, Florida, the famous late model race. Chase started, I think, outside the top 30 in this race and still rallied to 
finish in the top three. So it was an incredible mm-hmm. drive from somebody who has proven himself to be one of few drivers in NASCAR, in my opinion, Ben, who don't really have a weakness in terms of a type of a track. Like Chase, maybe Kyle Busch, maybe Joey Logano, I would say, and you could put, you could argue Kevin Harvick as well, certainly. Those are the guys who, to me, if it's a road course, if it's a super speedway, if it's a short track, if it's an intermediate track like Charlotte, like Darlington, Atlanta, or Texas, they're good at all of them. They can win mm-hmm. any given week, and it's a true testament to the talent that these guys have that they just don't seem to have a weakness, and that makes these championship battles so much more fun, too. Oh, I totally agree. And, you know, as you were talking, I thought back on something that that Bill Elliott said when he was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, and he was sitting there with Ray Evernham, who helped to induct him. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about, they went to, I don't recall the name of the speedway. It's one of the smaller Georgia short tracks, I think. But they put chase in a late model car and they were just out there to get him some laps and see how you do and they kept looking at each other like this kid's really got something special he he just has that feel and can't explain it but he's got the feel and so they were both amazed at how well he could adapt to whatever they threw at him you know they would they would put things in the car uh chassis wise to where okay this is going to cause him this problem or that problem and didn't seem to phase him at all he went on and turned some really good laps so you're right there are some people that are just so so good everywhere they they went and they could adapt to anything and going back to history just a smidge here bobby allison was that way he could drive anything definitely and and he could just whether it was a a sports car whether it was a stock car whether it was an indy car he ran two indy 500s a lot of people may not know that but he drove for roger penske in 1973 and 75 Mm -hmm. and he would go to places and someone would say hey, can you hop in my car and see what you can do? Well, he would turn laps better than they were. And he actually, in all honesty, made a few drivers mad because he showed them up. Oh, I'm and, sure he made a bunch of them mad with how good he was. Yeah, I mean, he, could, he was so good at adapting to whatever, whatever they threw at him. And ha- I believe he would have done well at Indianapolis had he not had mechanical failures both of those races. But back to Chase, he was the same way. And, and, it's, it's, uh, and I go to Jeff Gordon on this. Jeff was one of those drivers that could hop in anything and do well in it and so it's just i don't know how to explain it but it's just a feel a natural feel for a race car and and trace i believe certainly has that so obviously chase with him finishing number one in the championship this year very well deserved this being episode number one uh why don't we talk a little bit about the origins of the car number one and some of the people who've had success with that number and i'll start with you ben who are some of the guys that when you think of the one car who comes to mind well, there's a few. The first one, I guess, that comes to mind and, and growing up with him is Donnie Allison drove the number one for Haas Ellington. Actually, looking at the at the uh, the record books, there were 18 victories logged in the number one. And those drivers who did win in the car, Donnie Allison had four wins. Uh, Jamie McMurray had four wins. Um and another driver, Billy Wade, back in the 60s, won four consecutive races for Budmore Engineering in the Northern Tour. And they would go up to, say, uh, Bridgehampton, New York, and Islip and yeah. those types of racetracks. He won four in a row there. Uh, and then you have, of course, Kurt Busch has won a couple in the in the number one. So there was a total of – and there was a guy named Paul Lewis, by the way, I think, that won a couple of races too. So mm-hmm. the number one is, is well-known out there. But but I think the number one, if you had to really narrow it down, as far as history goes, the number one with Donnie Allison driving for Haas Ellington. Of course, they got in the 1979 Daytona 500 fight with uh, Bobby Allison and Kelly Arbor. I think that's the number one that really comes to mind. And there's other drivers that have driven the number one that just had that were not had, did not go to Victorian in those. So, so. Uh, when I when I think of the one, the guy who drove the one car when I was a kid was. Rick Mast, who won the pole for the first Brickyard 400, which is an incredible accomplishment. And I know it really aggravated Dale Earnhardt because he wound up hitting the wall in lap one because he wanted to lead the first lap so bad because he didn't win the pole. But I think of, of Rick Mast in that black and white skull Ford. Uh, before that, I think it was an Oldsmobile. 
And I think of him, he didn't win a cup race, but to me, I think Rick Mast and those guys from Rockridge Bass, Virginia, I think they're probably, he's one of the 10 best of the last 30 years to have not won a cup series points race. I think he showed a lot of skill as a driver for the various teams that he drove for. Uh, He came out of nowhere for a lot of people in the 89 Daytona 500, driving an unsponsored 66 car for Travis Carter Mm -hmm. and and nearly won the race. He, it was, you know, he was driving the, the big Monte Carlos. It was the last time they were going to run those at, at Daytona before they switched the, the Lumina. And he, he, he gave him a show, man. And, and I, I think I've always thought very highly of his skill as a driver and another one who drove the one car to me. And, and I always will associate him with the number one car is Steve Park. And Steve Park's story is one, which is, I'm not sure how familiar a lot of people are with him, but you know, this was a guy who came up through the ranks as a tremendous modified driver in the 1980s, 1990s. His dad, Bob Park, is a legend in the Northeast in the modified ranks. Got to the Cup Series driving for Dale Earnhardt Sr. in 97 in a limited schedule and then moved up full-time in 98, driving the number one Pennzoil car. And that's what I remember about Steve Park is in this Pennzoil car. It took him a couple years to win his first race. He won it at its home track in Watkins Glen in 2000. But in 2001... Steve Park was genuinely, he was a low-key championship contender in the first half of the season. This guy was just banging out top fives. He wasn't, he wasn't boomer bust. He was very, he was very consistent. And at that time, of course, there was no chase, there was no playoffs and consistency could, could be very rewarded. And there were, you know, there was a big chunk of that 01 season where Steve Park was in the top four or five in points. And then you get to Darlington and the, uh, the Southern 500 weekend and he's running in the bush race. And I, I remember this quite vividly. I was actually going with my dad to the flea market outside of Morganton, North Carolina, close to where we're from, where I could get some diecast cars um, and probably some basketball cars or something. I was 13 years old and, you know, mm-hmm. simple 13 year old interest at that time for a kid from North Carolina, but somebody had the bush race on TV and you know, you just walk by and you see, well, there's the race's red flag. All the cars are stopped. You know, that's it's not good. It's not raining. So what's the deal? And then they show this car that's a tarp over it. And as well, you know, when you saw a tarp over a race car at any point, you're like, okay, that's bad. Mm-hmm. And so then you find out, you know, that it's park. I didn't even know he was running in the bush race that, that weekend, driving the, the wheeling car. I think it was number 31. Um, and it was such a freak thing. I mean, it's when you look at the history of serious NASCAR accidents, so many of them can be classified as that's just racing. Davey had a couple of those. Um, Dale Jr. did. A lot of them have. With Steve Parks, he's going down the, the back stretch, if I recall, and he's swerving back and forth or under caution. And as he's moving back and forth to keep his tires warm, the steering wheel comes off in his hands and okay so well that's not that big of a deal because you know it's going to take you a second to reattach it but you're under caution so you know you're not going to hit the wall he's not going that quickly so it's just going to veer him off the line of cars under caution but nobody's going fast so he's not going to get hit well that's wrong because there was somebody coming up to get their lap back because lap cars lined up on the inside. This was well before, this was eight years before the double file restarts in NASCAR. And so this guy's coming up behind him and it just so happens he's approaching Steve Park. His car veers left, hard left, all of a sudden. And it gets T-boned, just clobbered by this lapped car. Mm-hmm. And, and just one of the most freak things. And I remember seeing it in the replay, um, Alan Bestwick was announcing the race and he, he thought Steve Park got hit. I mean, there was just no way to, to understand this. And he went, he underwent, you know, so many surgeries. Um, I had heard that he even had to, the guy had to learn how to walk again. I mean, it was just a, this, this major neurological injury that Steve Park had, um, because of this really weird accident. And I was so glad to see him as I'm sure everybody in, in NASCAR was, we were so glad to see the guy come back and race in the cup series in that one car, barely a year later. And then he had that bad wreck at Pocono with Dale Jr. where one of them gets clipped, spins in front of the other, and then Park's flipping down the backstretch. Everybody's holding their breath thinking, my gosh, there's no way this is happening to such a nice guy. And Mm -hmm. regrettably, he never achieved that 
success that it looked like he was on the precipice of achieving when he had that injury. He he won at Rockingham the week after we lost Dale Earnhardt Sr. and looked like he was going to win a lot of other races. He came back. It, it didn't quite work out for him. He kept racing in, in the Cup Series for several years. I finally met Steve last year at Charlotte um, before the monster truck race they have at the dirt track. I handled publicity for the dirt track for three years. and um, One of the things that, that we did to promote the monster truck race is we did a school bus race on the dirt track and Steve Park was one of the drivers and he was super cool to deal with you know it was a thrill for me Um, I was a Steve Park fan when I was a kid anything DEI when DEI started with the Ron Hornaday in the 16 Papa John's truck uh, I was I was all DEI. That was that was my team, and so obviously I was a big Steve Park fan, and I had never met the guy. So this was this huge thrill for me to meet him finally, mm-hmm. and you know it was the first time I'd seen Steve race in probably six or seven years. I'm sorry, uh, probably sixteen or seventeen years, which is depressing. Um, but it had been forever since I'd seen the guy race in a cup car, and he was racing a school bus. But he was super cool to deal with, and that's what I think of when I think of the one car. So he didn't have that success as some of the guys that you mentioned. Ben, but yeah, but he was a really interesting character. He was, and you know, there's another crash that unfortunately that he suffered was at Atlanta, uh, and broke his leg. I believe it was his left leg, but it was in the thigh area. So yeah. he had to, you know, do a good bit of rehabilitation for that. And of course, that for a time, even though it was a negative, a positive for Daryl Waltrip was Daryl, Dale Earnhardt Sr. went to him and said, I need some help. And so put Daryl in the car and he has actually had a pretty good few months in the car winning. I mean, he didn't win any races, but top fives and top tens. Mm -hmm. It was a real good combination, but he was there to help Steve out. But, you know, it's just sad that I agree with you. It's sad that he didn't, uh, you know, win more races. He was very capable and very talented, but circumstance just, uh, didn't deal him the right cards, but he'll always be remembered for the guy who won the race for DEI the, the week after Dale Earnhardt passed away in 2001. So, yeah, to put a positive spin on it, yeah, it, and he was very emotional in Victory Lane, as, mm-hmm. as he, we all were, and it was very difficult that weekend. It was just such a strange feeling to know that Dale Earnhardt was not there, and and I, I think Steve brought some positive, you know, back, and we and we all had to heal, and I think in a lot of respects we're still healing 20 years later Mm -hmm. it's going to be 20 years uh this coming february just when we go to daytona it's hard for me to believe it's been 20 years but steve was part of that healing process and it's a a brick at a time that you have to build a wall of you know to to get back to 100 anytime you lose a loved one and you know maybe always get back to being 100 after you lose a loved one i should say that but in a positive light though he, he was a great driver and and uh, glad to see that see that he's still with us, and and he might who knows he might be in on a short track somewhere right now testing a race car. You just never know about Steve. He might be testing the school bus for all we know. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned people who the circumstances didn't deal a great hand to. Steve Park, as we mentioned, is a prime example. But when I think of the word circumstances, I think of the guy who said famously. You don't worry about winning. You put yourself in the position to win, and you let the circumstances handle the rest. And that's Richard Petty. Richard Petty, for episode one of A Lifetime in NASCAR, is our driver of the week, the first driver of the week that we've ever had. Certainly not the last. Certainly a very deserving one, being the all-time leading race winner in the history of the NASCAR Cup Series with 200 wins, a mark which is quite unattainable, I feel safe to say. Um Ben, you and I both grew up admiring Richard Petty, as I think millions and millions of people across the United States did. What are some of your favorite memories of the King? Oh well, there, there's a there's a bunch, but I, you know, I've talked to Dale Inman about this and Richard a little bit too. But his racing career, I guess, if you really want to go way back to day one, would be when he and Dale Inman would race bicycles uh, to the creek to fish. I mean, that's how far back it went. And being the son of Lee Petty, a three-time NASCAR champion, of course, they had a rule growing up that, okay, you can't go play basketball, you can't go fishing, you can't go to these things until the car is ready to to race. And that was back when they were 11, 12 years old. So they would air up the tires and they would change the oil and make sure it had gas and whatever, you know, small things they could do as an 11, 12 year old, then they go ride bikes. And so 
for Richard, I mean, he knew exactly what he was going to do. And, you know, he told me a funny story about how, you know, Lee Petty ran the number 42 throughout his career. And I've asked Kyle about this and, and Kyle said, I'm really not sure where the 42 came from. I think it came off the end of a car tag, a North Carolina car tag, which where that the 43, 42 came from. Well, Richard told me, he said, what I wanted to do is I wanted to have the number 24 before, you know, because my dad had had the 42. I just wanted to, you know, do the opposite. Really? So that, yeah. So there was a guy who was racing the number 24 at the time, and he went to him and said, hey, would you let me have the 24? My dad's got 42. really would love to have it. And he wouldn't let him have it because he said, well, no, 24 is my number. So his, you know, he, he said I kind of sulked and got ticked for a week or two. And finally, I just said, oh, what the heck? I'll just put 43 on it. And lo and behold, I mean, it's the greatest race car number of all time. Yeah. But that's how that all came about is that he really wanted 24 and the guy wouldn't let him have it. So, you know, there's just a, a bazillion stories about the king. But the one thing I want to say about him, I don't know of any change in his personality from the day I met him in 1983 to, the, to now. He has been just as down to earth and classy of a guy that you could ever meet. You think, well, this guy's got every right in the world to be standoffish and untouchable, not Richard Petty. He is the the absolute king because he's the greatest ambassador NASCAR has ever had. And just that whole Petty family, and I'll, I'll quickly share this. The Linda Petty, who has passed away, sadly, we're sorry for her loss, mm-hmm. um, she would require that all of the petty kids, Kyle and Rebecca and Lisa and all of them, every Christmas they would wrap gifts and they would put boy girl on them and they would put an age on them. And then we go, they didn't know the, the children they were giving gifts to, but they would fill their station wagon to the brim with Christmas presents. And they would just, now you're in charge of this area over here and you're in charge of this area over here and you're in charge of this area over here. And they would give all these out. And Kyle would say, we didn't know the people, but we'd knock on the door and we'd hand them the gift. And which which really helped others, you know, make their Christmases really special. Definitely. And he said, yeah, and, and he said, Mom would say, if you cannot leave it on the porch, you got to, if they're not there when you go by, you have to go back. And you got to sit down with them and wish them a Merry Christmas. Well, I mean, that tells you everything right there. The Petties, Richard, uh, Linda, all them. And it, and it extended to Maurice, his brother, and Lee. Just a down-to-earth, really good family of people on top of being so great as a NASCAR driver. And I, I just love the guy. I mean, every time I talk to him, he's got a big smile on his face. And, and uh, you know, he doesn't call me Ben. He says, hey, bud, every time I see him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's just so cool because it's like you have every right to, to be, you know, uh, way up on that pedestal somewhere. And you're not. You're just he's just as down to earth a guy. And I know millions of people have met him mm-hmm. and just think the world of him. So I, that's my petty stories. But he's, he's that whole family is awesome. I can completely agree. And so just to kind of underscore how much of a Richard Petty fan I've been, uh, certainly now and as a kid, I actually dressed up as Richard Petty for Halloween twice. Good deal. How about that? <laughs> yeah, so I did it twice. Um, we, uh, my, my, my parents got me a hat that was like the Kings and some sunglasses, and my mom actually cut out a little STP logo. I mean, you didn't have STP stickers then. All these things weren't readily available in the late 80s, early 90s. I'm not sure if they even are now. But, you know, the King, his sunglasses always had that little STP sticker on them. So uh, my mom cut out a little STP picture from a magazine and she put it on the sunglasses almost like it was a little sticker decal so i had that i had an stp jacket with 43 on it with richard petty on it Uh, i had the whole shebang and i did that twice because i'm of course you had the the mustache and everything man it was uh it it was good it was a whole it was it was a whole deal and uh when i when i look back as a kid everybody has that one seminal Halloween outfit that they're proud of or that they look back on and smile about perhaps maybe more than others. And for me, it was Richard Petty because 
this guy was the first hero I had outside of my family. Um, you know, when I was really little, he was, he was larger than life. I mean, I remember being in first grade, somebody asking me where Richard Petty finished the race. And I was like, he retired and just like had no patience for how could you not know that Richard Petty's not racing this year <laughs> and it's miserable. Rick Wilson's driving the 44 car. It's not the same, but you know, when you're five years old, you're, you're, you quickly learn that you're probably not going to get to see him race a whole lot anymore. And we didn't, I did get to see him once in the 92 Winston, which was, a, a great pleasure as it was it was also his last top 10 finish in the Winston Cup series he finished ninth in that race um, ran, ran in the top two for a little bit and I'm not going to say it's because they inverted the field even though it's mostly because they inverted the field but um, you know the king it, it's so crazy I, I don't think hardly anybody knew I certainly didn't the story of the family giving out presents to people because I think a lot of us thought the greatest gifts Richard Petty gave to, to NASCAR fans were just the simple enjoyment of, of watching him dominate the field the way he acted and conducted himself as the ultimate ambassador not just for NASCAR but for motor racing in general for decades and decades his popularity in a lot of ways kept NASCAR afloat during the uh, 1970s and its period of economic instability when you know they were they had to shorten some of the races because of a fuel shortage so there was a lot of things going on a lot of uncertainty in NASCAR and Richard Petty was that that unifying force that kept everything going that kept people engaged that kept sponsors wanting to come back and that ultimately drove CBS to start broadcasting some of the races in 1979 so his impact as a driver it's it's in you know there's no way you can you can truly quantify it as a fan for me you know i mean i had richard petty t-shirt and i was two or three years old and i still i still have a couple richard petty hats uh, one that i bought for my buddy brent wentz um and his store days gone by in mooresville not far from where i live um mm-hmm. it's a original 1989 stp richard petty hat i got a year or two ago and i still wear that pretty regularly um he's just he's an icon in the sport and yeah. as, as far as for me i didn't get a chance to meet him in my childhood i would have freaked out i finally did when i was 15 at speed street in uptown charlotte this was in may of 2003 he did an autograph session for cheerios because they were the sponsor of the 43 car at the time and to accurately date this ben this was during the very short period where christian fittipaldi the former formula one driver drove the 43 car mm. And so my dad and I went and I met Richard Petty and we didn't bring a camera because it just wasn't something we thought to do. And so um, we started talking with a couple Petty fans in line in front of us and they had their camera. And so, I, you know, they're taking pictures of the king and I'm posing for the pictures thinking they're taking them of me and him because I'm just in awe. And they take like seven or eight pictures, and the king passes them back. He's like, okay, buddy. Um, so, <laughs> so I let him go. He was super yeah. nice. And then I interviewed – the first time I interviewed him was in 2015 for a story for for Speed Sport Magazine about his win in the, the 81 Daytona 500, what wound up being his last 500 win. Mm-hmm. And it was just – this great story. I have this picture. I gave him a copy of the magazine several months later in 2015 or 2016. And, uh, you know, took a picture of him reading it and it's just to get this ultimate thrill. Yeah. I don't think there's any way you can tell me times he's, he's, he's just lightened up somebody's day because of things like that. Oh, sure. And there's a, for me, there's probably a hundred stories, but I'll share this one real quick. Actually a couple of them real fast, but in 1992, we were at Pocono. I was with, of course, NASCAR Scene and Illustrated, as I said earlier. And I had written a piece for NASCAR Scene about what he should do about the number 43. And as writers, you know, you're all the time struggling with something to write about next week and next week and next week. Yeah. And so I just picked it. It's like, well, this would just be something good to write about. And what I wrote about in the column that I wrote was that Richard Pettis should run the number 44 in 1993 and then go back to 43 the next year because it would be too hard of a transition for people to associate another driver with the 43 after so many years. Mm-hmm. And so we're in Pocono and Chuck Chuck Spicer was his PR director, and Chuck came in the media center and says, the king wants to see you. And I thought, oh, crap. <laughs> it makes you I feel like you're in medieval I, Europe when they say the king wants to see you. <laughs> I know, I know. And it's like, what have I – I mean, I, I was uh, – and I have to admit, I just a bit of fear went over me. It's like, oh, I've made him mad some way. <laughs> yeah. So I walked over to the truck, and I sat down on the back of the transporter there waiting to get scolded or whatever. And he, and he come out, and he said, hey, man, how you doing? I said, great. I said, what have I done wrong? He said, no. I loved your article, and I I, I think I'm going to do that. And we talked about the intricacies of moving to 
44 and how cool it would be and go back to 43. And I was like, man, that's the coolest thing. And we had, and a friend of mine snapped a photo of us sitting on the back of the transporter talking about that. And I just thought, I mean, little old me, you're going to listen to little old me about this, you know, and that's kind of the way I felt about it. But I was just honored that he read it and he thought that was a great idea and they ended up doing that. But the second thing I wanted to tell you though, Aaron was very quickly, my son, Aaron, by the way, is the same name. Uh, when he was 16 years old, he went with me to, uh, interview Richard Petty at the Petty Enterprises <laughs> there when, it, when they were back there. And so we got to talking about crashes and things, I think for some story I was working on. And so he told my son, Aaron, he said, listen, he said, there's something I need you to hear me me say what's that said when you get in trouble and you know you're in trouble ball up behind the wheel as tight as you can and just you know stay tight behind the wheel wear your seat belt and all that but just just stay tight okay well as it turned out about six months later he Aaron was driving his Camaro and he wasn't going very fast at all there was a, a, a EMT and his personal car running behind him and what happened was he got just a little bit off the pavement and got into a culvert and it made the car flip and so he remembered Aaron remembered what Richard said to him about you know be be tight in the car if you know you're in trouble as it turned out the car was heavily damaged he probably would not be here today had he not gotten that advice because the car was totally destroyed and the top was pashed, mashed down to the tops of the doors and fortunately he was not hurt thank the good lord he wasn't hurt but that was a key part of it to the, to be instructed on what to do if you know you're in trouble and you can't stop it you're, if you're flipping or whatever ball up and and I, I will always credit Richard Petty for helping to save him that day and so he's all the time helping people any way he possibly can and wants nothing for it he just he, he cares very deeply he's a really good person and I just I'm so fortunate to have a friendship with him so you're kind of at fault for for Rick Wilson not making untold amounts of, of money in merchandise because he drove the STP 44 car it's totally my fault <laughs> I'm sure totally by now he's, he's gotten over it for, for I think it was a great idea and frankly I'm kind of surprised that some of the other legends since then haven't explored the same possibility in particular Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson among several others those are there two I kind of thought you know that it would be very appropriate to do that and they opted not to do that for various reasons um, but yeah it, it's you know the, the king and, and we'll talk a lot about the king you know in the future but in, in these future episodes but it's amazing how much of an impact he's had on so many people and how how helpful he can be to people and how there's you know there's so many people who have met him and just get that impression of, you know, wow, this guy's just a genuinely good person. And he, he really is. Um, and speaking of, you know, around this time, Ben, you were covering races. I was watching them on TV in 1992. Um, to wrap up episode one, uh, let's talk a little bit about the championship battle at Atlanta when the season used to end there, and certainly the most famous one, and for my money, one of the three or four most important races in NASCAR's history. It was Richard Petty's last race in 1992, but it was also so much more than just Richard Petty's last race, so tell me what you remember from that. Oh, yeah. Well, it was electric. If you want to come up with a name for uh, how it felt during that weekend, totally electric and i can tell you exactly why richard petty's last race this new young kid with a mustache jeff gordon's first race uh they had seven if i'm not mistaken i'm pretty sure i'm right about this they had seven drivers going into the final race who had a mathematical chance of winning the championship and kyle petty was one of them right yeah kyle was one of them and and all davy had to do davy allison all he had to do was finish i believe in the top six Maybe it wasn't even that far up to the like the top twelve. I mean, he had it nailed. Yeah, okay? he was in he a good spot. Just, he was in a great spot. All he had to do is just finish, and he led some laps. And then, of course, that went away when he and Ernie Urban got together on the front stretch. But the, and very quickly, how cool Davey was about you know he he could have gotten upset. Very class act when he had to, to say, "Hey, we'll come back." 
next year. And of course that didn't happen because he passed away the next year. But as far as that particular race goes, there was so much going on. Then you get in the race, it's between Bill Elliott and Alan Kowicki, and it comes down to leading the most laps and leading a lap. And that's where the 10 points came from, from Alan Kowicki to win over Bill Elliott. But my friend, Ken Martin, who works for NASCAR now, he worked for ESPN as a statistician. And they kept look, Bob Jenkins and Benny Parsons kept looking at him like, yeah, he was that guy who had to do the numbers, right? Yeah, who's who's going to win this thing? And Ken's like, I was really shut. My hands were shaking because I kept telling him, this is who won, and and it's going to be Kawiki. He said everything was on the line, and and it's the most amazing race I've ever witnessed. That every lap counted for something huge. And as it turned out, Alan Bill uh, wins the race, Alan wins the championship, but it came down to 10 points. And those 10 was leading the most laps and leading one lap. And Alan in the car had to count how many laps. His crew was, you know, just beside themselves. I mean, this is very, very intense stuff we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, he won the championship. And unfortunately, we lost Alan in 1993 to a plane crash, lost Davey to a helicopter crash, lost Allen to a plane crash but just oh my gosh it was it was very very intense so trying to write that story was so hard because you you couldn't start on it because every lap somebody was it changed it yeah it's amazing it was truly amazing you'd probably have to write three or four endings and then just keep going back and <laughs> forth and yeah. and and you know I've, I've i've done that before and it's miserable <laughs> you want to know what's yeah. going to happen and in that yeah. case you couldn't you, you know you what, try yeah. you try to to start a, a story at least have a way to go you know some path to take right and that race you couldn't do anything because every time somebody you know bill would leave alan would leave bill would leave it was amazing i mean i'm telling you it, that to me is the most intense NASCAR race of all time. And if I remember correctly from from, from stories I've read, from things people have told me, uh, the gas man then, uh, they were worried if they got enough fuel in the car on Allen's last pit stop. So everybody's asking him, like, are you sure you had it full enough? Like, are you sure he's, he's got he's got enough to go to the finish? And he's like, I don't know. I hope. I think so. I mean, I you know, we'll just have to see. So there was even that added level of stress and uncertainty in the, the Hooters 7 pit. And it is so tragic that we lost Alan Kowicki after that. Um, and, and I think an even sadder part of that is Davey after that race saying, you know, in, in the next April after we lost Allen, Davey saying... Well, I'm glad Allen won the championship because it was the only chance he had, and hopefully I'll have a lot more championships to win mine. Unfortunately, we lost him just a couple months later. Um, yep. I met Allen in 92 um, at the mall in Gastonia. I promise I'm not going to tell a lot of stories about being in the mall in Gastonia. This is probably the last one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, they did a lot of NASCAR driver autograph sessions then. So um, we, but I don't think that my family was there for autograph session. I think we were just there. Uh, you know, shopping around and we were in Belk and Alan Kowicki was there. And I don't remember this. I wish I did. Uh, but I was like, you're Alan Kowicki. Um, and he just, he just got a kick out of the fact that I recognized him. And apparently I got his autograph. I don't know what happened to it, but yeah, you know, he was, my, my parents were not really Kowicki fans at this point. And my mom told me, she's like, yeah, I, you know, we didn't really like him that much. You know, it was kind of all right. And then the interaction I had with him that day, you know, they're like, oh, we were on quickie fans after that. Um, so, you know, it just shows you how one quick interaction with somebody can, can truly make a, a, a fan forever. And mm-hmm. Alan had that effect on so many people. So did Richard Petty and Chase Elliott, Davey, Dale Jr., Bobby, all the people we've talked about in this episode um, and many of whom we'll talk about. Um, at at many lengths in the future, but yeah, just to wrap up, Ben. I mean, that '92 season was uh, was truly thrilling. It's the first one I really remember somewhat vividly, and for you and, and everybody who got to be there and experience it, it had to be truly unlike anything else you've ever seen. It, it really was, and the fact that we, these guys, Alan Kowicki, Davey Allison, were on on the very edge of. of dominating the 90s is what was going to happen and they're like this is sort of a changing of the guard if you will and sadly we didn't get to see that with them and you know we don't have all the answers here someday we may but you know we just we lost two great champions and i call davy a champion even though he didn't win one he came mm-hmm. really close and definitely champion as a yeah champion as a as a person champion as a friend and and just thinking back on that era that year was just amazing in so many ways and then of course the 
the the last one. The, what a way to, to cap off a, a tremendous season. Even though we had sadness, it was a tremendous race. And uh, you know, it's just I don't know how to say it better. It's just that race was absolutely the greatest championship race I know of of anywhere of any time. We've reached the point of. Richard Petty pulling out on the track to run the last lap of that race of our first episode. Um, I'd like to thank you, Ben, for all these incredible stories. I never heard any of these. It's really, it's really exciting for me to kind of relive some of these moments. Uh, we look forward to doing this for you as well in future episodes. So for our first episode, I'm Aaron Burns. Ben White, thank you so much for, uh, for, for you, joining buddy. me. This has been an absolute pleasure. We'll come back with uh, plenty more episodes in the future of A Lifetime in NASCAR car going over countless stories moments drivers teams races tracks you name it we're going to talk about it we'll be back with a new episode very soon but for now thanks for listening and so long Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.